morning to everyone who's watching online. Welcome to Carnegie Free. My name's Adrian. Uh, Sarah didn't have a joke for you, but I got one. What do you call a bear that doesn't have any teeth? No answers? A gummy bear. I got that from a kid in this church this morning. Came up to me and shared that with me. I thought it was good. Well, we welcome you to Carnegie Free. So glad that you're here to worship with us, uh, especially on this Independence Day weekend. So grateful for our nation and the independence that we have, the liberties though, that we enjoy. As Providence would have it, this past week, my wife and I watched the movie called The Apostle Paul. It was out about a year and a half ago. R raise your hand if you watched that movie. Okay, a number of you. That was really, really well done. Excellent movie. And I would actually encourage you to watch it as we're studying through the book of Galatians right now. Gives you a sense of what the Apostle Paul might have been like. It's actually situated a little bit later in his life, toward around 67 AD, whereas Galatians, what we're in here right now, is situated around 47, 48 AD. But it's a reminder of a number of things to me, especially on this holiday week. Um, we're so blessed with religious liberty, are we not? We, we are so blessed with religious liberty here. But it's not a granted. It's not something to be taken for granted. It's not something that many nations across the world and many times in history people have had. And indeed, in the first century, Christians did not have religious liberty really at all. And you see that in a profound way as you watch the Apostle Paul. It's also a reminder to me, number one, that if you can get religious liberty, you should. And you should keep it if you can. But no matter what our government might do, we still can follow Christ. Let me say that again. No matter what our government might do in the future, we still can and must follow Christ with all that we have. And what you see in a beautiful way in this movie, if you watch it, and really if you talk to missionaries all around, all around the world, is this. Uh, Christianity oftentimes thrives when we're not living in comfort. Can I get an Amen. I, not too many amens to that. Like, we oftentimes thrive most as Christians when we're not just enjoying the greatest comfort, even when we're not in the greatest power. And Christianity is not a power grab. It's humility. It's the humility of Christ and taking the moral high ground and serving and sacrificing oneself for others. So we, and we are so, so grateful for our independence and religious liberty today and pray that we can continue to keep that but may it never let us lose our edge, uh, the edge that many, many people have when they don't have religious liberty. They say, well, what I still got is Christ, and I can worship him no matter what anyone tells me in the privacy of my home, and I'll do so. So check that out if you're so led. It's, it's really well worth your time. Uh, if you're new here, we are in the book of Galatians. It's this six-chapter letter that the Apostle Paul writes to these various churches in the region of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. And uh, let me give you a quick outline for the entirety of the book of Galatians. If you're new here, you kind of get caught up with a little bit of this. It's basically just this, that this is what Paul covers. Chapters 1 and 2 is the gospel of the crucified Christ. Over and over again, he hits on the gospel of the crucified Christ. Chapters 3 and 4 creates one new multi-ethnic community. One new multi-ethnic family that we are very different, we're diverse, at times we're messy, 
but we are one family together under Christ who is the head of the church, under the Father who has given us the church. One new multi-ethnic community that is free from all legalism and transformed by the Holy Spirit of God. I encourage you to stick with us in this Mark It Up series, but because pretty soon we're going to be in chapters 5 and 6, which is all about application and being transformed by the Spirit of God and what that looks like in us when we become really devoted followers of Christ and are living in the Holy Spirit in such a way that we start to exhibit the fruit of the Holy Spirit uh, profoundly to those around us. Again, we're in this middle section, which uh, raised the question for us, what does one diverse, messy community or one diverse, messy family look like? Well, if you were with us last Sunday, you heard Pastor Brian give this analogy, this illustration of us being many different kinds of, what? Faucets, they all say it once. Many different kinds of faucets. And has any pastor ever gotten so much mileage out of a single illustration? <laughs> Brian nailed that. It was a great message, and I love the imagery he gave there. There's hundreds of different kinds of faucets, but they all have to be connected to the same source, don't they? Like they're worthless if they're not connected to the same source, which in our case is many, many different kinds of people all connected to the same source who is Christ. One of the things that a diverse, messy family does and must do is put first things first. And so let me just uh, repeat for a moment some of the things that we do here at Carney E. Free to put first things first, as it bears repeating from the early chapters of Galatians. The first thing that we place first is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to talk every Sunday in one way or another about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we believe the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the means by which we gain life. It's the means by which that we, who are sinners, I am, am nonetheless welcomed into God's family, nonetheless welcomed into his love and his presence, freely by his grace due to none of my own merit none of your own merit we are what so we focus on the gospel and then we focus on loving each other really really well being lavish in our love for one another because we are a diverse and messy family who can say i'm messy with me i'm messy okay and you're messy and i'm messy and we're all messy but but, but we're in this together. And because we are messy, we recognize the great need for us to be a part of a small group community that being part of this large church alone won't do it. So we emphasize things like life groups here and recovery groups and care groups because we know that men need to be with other men in a forge group. Women need to be with other women in some ladies' group, or perhaps they're in a regular life group with men and women, but from time to time they split off, and it's men together and women together fought from time to time. And I just want to really urge you, if you're a regular here and a newcomer here, and you don't yet have a life group, make that a priority even today to go out to the life group kiosk, connect with Pastor John Watson or one of the other volunteers there, because Christianity is a team sport. It's not like tennis. Like, it's more like football. But we need each other to succeed. You need to have a few other people on the line with you if you're going to succeed. And so we have to have a few other people around us that are supporting us and praying for us, and we're moving in the same direction toward Christ. Otherwise, we become these sitting ducks that are just waiting to get shot at. 
And that's true for me as well. So it's going to look different for all of us, but we want to be a part of this one big messy family in which we're a part of a, uh, a life group of some kind, supporting each other and, and investing in other people's lives as well because God says that people matter the most. Isn't that right? God says that people matter the most, and so we ask others to invest in us, and then we invest in a few other people. It's absolutely critical to our growth in Christ. We are a family. We're not a biological family, but we are a spiritual family. Let me ask you as we get into this morning's message, uh, have you ever had the experience of being at a family gathering, and you just get the sense that other people don't want you there? You ever had this experience of like, man, I'm, I'm here with my family, but they kind of recoil at my presence, or they don't really want me here. I'm not sure if I'm welcome here. Like maybe I could do the dishes for these people, but I'm not sure that I belong with these people. You, you had that experience? How about this one? Raise your hand with me if you've had that experience in some church. Okay, a number of you. Thank you for being honest and sharing that. I, I have too. And it's that same alienating experience that I just described with family. You go into a church and you feel like I'm not welcome here. I cannot belong here. Perhaps I could serve these people. Perhaps I could give to this place but I cannot belong here. They don't really want me here. That's one of the more painful experiences that I've had. And I imagine, for those of you who raise your hand, you would agree. I pray that you haven't experienced that here, but many of us have experienced that in different places. There's a longing that we have to enter into a family setting and take a deep breath and know that I can relax here that I can be at ease here, that this is, this is family. The Apostle Paul is going to speak to that this morning in Galatians chapter 4. So if you turn there with me, we're going to jump into Galatians 4 this morning. Again, last week was one diverse, messy family. This week is nothing less than family. Not servants, much more than servants sons and daughters of God in the family of God. Uh, verse 26 of chapter 3 kind of gives us a little bit of background for his message today. He says this, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, Neither the Jewish nation nor other ethnic nations, you're all one in Jesus Christ. Neither slave or servant or worker or businessman, you're all free, all one in Christ. Nor is there male and female divisions, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you are a follower of Christ today, you connect all the way back to the very first man who was selected by God to begin this family of God, a man named Abraham. You are heirs of that promise. And even more so now as children of God under Jesus Christ who has purchased us by his blood. 
He goes on to say now in chapter 4, verse 1, What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different than a slave. No different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that he might give to us the full rights of sonship. Adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Mm, what a passage. Now, we're wise as we hear these terms. Slave, child, in God's family, to kind of define our terms, aren't we? What's Paul talking about here? For much of his audience, as they hear this word that you once were a slave, this Jewish audience would probably think back to their ancestors who were, of course, chattel slaves in Egypt. Then they were freed. Or perhaps they would think back to the years under Assyrian rule when they likewise were slaves. Or the years under Babylonian rule when they likewise were slaves. And their slavery in each of those three different kingdoms was much like the American slavery that existed here in our beautiful nation for 250 years where African Americans were served as chattel slaves. They were owned by someone else. So also that was the Jewish experience under three different kingdoms for probably a collective 1,000 years. That was their experience. Now, by the time things moved into the Roman Empire, the first century, where Paul is writing now, in the Roman Empire, Christians were no longer slaves, Jews were no longer slaves, but they were like second-class citizens. And a better word that we would use for their experience at this time when Paul is writing is indentured servants. They're like indentured servants, or bond servants, if you will, who would sell their services as an impoverished person to a wealthy person, they would sell their services as a teacher, as a philosopher, as a household helper, and that would be their employment setting under someone else who was wealthier and who was a businessman who could employ them. It wasn't quite as wonderful as being an employee under an employer, but it's somewhat similar to that, a temporary selling of one's services to someone else for a specified period of time. Now, added to that in the Roman Empire, well, was this. If you were Jewish or if you were a Christian, you were, by definition, a second-class citizen. And so, in the Roman Empire, they actually experienced things like this. If a Roman soldier comes to you and tells you to pick up his armor and carry it for one mile, you must do it. Whatever you're doing, you're going off to work, you have to stop and go pick up his armor and carry it wherever he tells you to carry it for one mile, and then your job is done. That's what was expected of a Jew or of a Christian in the Roman Empire. It was required by law. Jesus, of course, says what? Go with him the second mile. He's so subversive. 
Jesus was so subversive in his love, in his way of taking the moral high ground and saying, be a sacrificial servant no matter who tries to lord it over you. What if we as the church got that back again? Wow. But, but that's, that's what Jesus did. That, that's what he said. And, and if you can imagine living in that kind of situation, that kind of context, that's how they lived. They had to actually do these kinds of things. And so they are longing for freedom because they are second-class citizens in the Roman Empire. Second-class bathrooms, second-class jobs, second-class restaurants, second-class in the Roman Empire. Now, if you have that in mind, if you imagine that with me, you can imagine what music this is to your ears to hear the Apostle Paul write this. When the set time had fully come, oh man, it was the set time for freedom. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. What does redeem mean? It means purchase. I would write that on the side of my Bible. So Jesus came to purchase you from the penalty of failing to follow the law. He purchased you. He redeemed you. Redeemed those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. What does Abba mean, anyone? It means Daddy. What does Abba mean? It means Daddy. So like God invites you to call him Father in a sense of reverence. But God also invites you to call him Daddy. But the spirit of his son who invites us to call him Abba, Daddy, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but you are God's child. And not only God's child, since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. I would circle that, underline it, highlight it, whatever. You're an heir, which means you're entitled to all the beautiful privilege that the Son of God received. The Son of God is elevated, he ascends to heaven, and so also the paradise that he reigns in now, that will be yours by faith in Jesus Christ. Not a slave any longer. Not an indentured servant any longer. A child of God. A son or daughter of God, welcomed into the Father's full embrace, even an heir of the paradise of heaven. And so we begin to live into that reality together as one family. I pray that you understand this. You're entitled to that inheritance as an heir of the Father's love every bit as much as I am. Every bit as much as me. You're a minister. You are called to be a minister every bit as much as me. Because you are a child of God in the church of Jesus Christ where he is head and we are all members serving underneath his reign. That's what we're invited to. So the question is, if we are all together, sons and daughters of God in this family, the question is, how are we doing living into that reality within this church family? I believe every church is wise to pause and ask that question from time to time. How are we doing acting like sons and daughters of God within this church family? I think about 90% of the time we're doing great. I am so, so blessed. I hear from people on a regular basis. I came to this place and I had no church background, and yet I was welcomed here. I came to this church and I was just seeking for spiritual answers, didn't know what I believed, and I was loved here. I was invited into a life group here. 
I came to this church and I was fresh off a divorce and I was loved here. I was welcomed. I, I hear these kinds of examples all the time. And yet every once in a while I hear a different kind of example. A couple months ago I met with a woman who uh, had this as her church home for a couple years and uh, she decided to leave this place and go to another church and I ran into her and she said, I wonder if I could sit down and talk with you. And she did what I hope we would all do if we ever left another church and came to this church, that you would have a conversation with a pastor at the other church. And she decided to have a conversation with me about the reasons that she was leaving our church. That was mature. Young lady, but very, very mature. And I so appreciate her doing that. That was respectful. And uh, I, I just asked her in the context of this meeting, what could we have done to serve you better? And she said, you know, Adrian." The music was great, and the teaching was okay, <laughs> and on and on. She said, but I, I got to this place where I felt like on a couple Sundays where I was particularly vulnerable, uh, the greeters said hi to me, but they're supposed to say hi to me, and nobody else said hi to me. And she said, when I was particularly vulnerable, I sat over in this section and uh, I was alone and on a couple Sundays I was crying and people just kind of got up and left. And I, I mean, like, in a, in a way I get that because I don't, I don't want to get in someone's space when they're crying. I mean, I don't want to be up in anyone's business just like you don't want to be up in anyone's business. But if we're family... Sometimes we got to get up in each other's business. If we're a spiritual family and someone comes into your biological family and you see they're crying, I trust you'd say something. And, and I want to trust that we would do that. That we would fight against any cliques. That we would fight against my people versus your people. And I, I think we are, but we're never going to get there perfectly unless we have a plan to get there. And, and we just prioritize that. I'll go out of my way to connect with people who look and sin differently than me. And I tell you, that, that kind of story, when I heard that from this young lady, it breaks my heart because wide are the arms of the love of God. Wide are the arms of the love of God. And I always want to lead a church where wide are the arms of the love of the church. We always want to be a part of a church where wide are our arms to say we're different and we're messy, but we love each other and we go out of our way. And we believe that freedom is found for every one of us in the safety of the Father's family. And believing that I come in here and I got to be safe in this place, safe in the Father's family. Freedom is found for every one of us in the safety of the Father's family. We gain freedom in Christ when we're free from old enslaving patterns and when we know that we found a safe place to belong. Especially here in 2019, belonging is more important than it's ever been. People belong before they believe in general today. And the crazy thing is, though, that we've been talking about with the church in Galatia is this. They got freed from the legalism. They were on the hook of legalism in the Jewish 
culture of their day, the Pharisees had them on the hook of all of these do's and don'ts, all this legalism. They come to Christ and they come off of that hook and then they go back onto another hook of Pharisaical legalism of all these do's and don'ts. And in essence, what they did, the Galatians turned from the grace of God to the laws of men. They abandoned their liberty in Christ for the bondage under men. And Paul has something to say about that, as you would imagine. Verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. You were slaves to these Pharisees who always told you what to do and gave you a bunch of do's and don'ts that you could never fulfill. But now that you know God, or rather, I might say, you are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. Now Paul goes on and he gives really strong rhetoric to communicate his concern, his zeal, that they would just come back to true faith in Christ without all these rules and to-dos that were enslaving them all the more. But it raises the question for me, what is it for us in 2019 that we can be enslaved to? where we get taken off the hook and then we can put ourselves back on the hook. Like, you ever been out there on the lake and you caught the same bass a second time? <laughs> right? Maybe not. I haven't either, but just imagine, right? <laughs> just imagine, I'm not that fisherman. Just imagine you did. I mean, that just happens. My son did that last week, actually. He caught the same bass twice. Pretty proud of my boy. But like sometimes we get caught the same way a second time, and that's exactly what he's talking about here, is the Galatians got caught a second time the same way. We can be enslaved to a set of rules that stifles our freedom. And that's what was going on there in that uh, collection of churches. They start off enslaved, they get freedom, and they get enslaved again to the ceremonial law that we talked about a couple weeks ago. So all these weeks and months and festivals and days, that's part of the ceremonial system that led to the sacrifice system of all the Jewish holidays that they're now getting enslaved back into. And with it, the Sabbath restrictions that take away the gift of Sabbath and turns it into the stick to punish people. And that's what they're going back into under the Pharisees when they leave the freedom that they have in Christ. It's the do's and don'ts that make up legalism. In our culture today, perhaps it would be, you better read this Bible translation. Or, did you tithe on your gross or your net income? Or, did you go dancing? Or watch a movie? Or play cards? You know, these are things that the church used to really struggle with, actually, 30, 40 years ago, when the church tended to be very, very legalistic. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ that I trust in him as Savior and Lord plus nothing. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, I trust in him as Savior and Lord, and I add a bunch of other to-dos. We don't believe in that. We believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ plus nothing equals everything. Say that with me. Gospel of Jesus Christ plus nothing equals everything. So we don't want to get tangled again in a list of to-dos that make up legalism. That can happen to some people today. That's something to be on guard against. But my guess is for most of us, we need to be more on guard in our culture to be enslaved to something else. Not so much legalism, 
but license. I'll do whatever I want to do. We can be enslaved to a behavior or an idea that we hate, but we cannot escape it. You know what I'm talking about? That there's some kind of behavior, there's some kind of habit that you hate it. You say, why do I keep on returning to that? And you can't seem to escape it. Or it could be an idea that I know that's not true of me anymore. I know that shameful thought is not true of me anymore. Why do I keep on going back to that? Here's how Paul puts it in verse 9. Again, as we're marking up our Bible, he says this. Now that you know God, or rather you are known by God, and so we know that he's able to keep us to the very end because he knows us, it's not just based on us, it's based on him and what he does for us. We're known by him. How is it that you are turning back? How are you turning back to those weak and miserable forces? But haven't we all been there? Like every single one of us has been there at one time or another that there was some kind of habit, some kind of behavior, idea that we hate, but it became a habit, and we're trying to run from it, but it just has this way of kind of pulling us back in, like it's got magnets on us to bring us back to it. Let me give you a few examples. Shortly before uh, the film director Sidney Pollack died in 2008, there was an article written about him that explained that while he was sick and dying, he could not stop working. And his family was begging him to stop working, or at the very least to slow down, because it was literally killing him how hard he was working on directing the next film. Pollock said that although the grueling filmmaking, film movie-making process was wearing him down, he couldn't justify his existence if he stopped. And he said, every time I finish another picture, I feel I have earned my stay for another year or so. Wow. Talk about an enslaving idea. That I get my value only from what I do. That's an enslaving idea. I earn my stay only by what I do. Now, other people are enslaved by, by an idea that they earn their stay and their sense of value comes because their kids are successful. And that's a very, very common one in our culture, and I'm tempted by it too, because I so desperately want my kids to be successful. But it's this idea that I will somehow be validated if my kids are successful and they do well and they make holy, righteous decisions, which frankly is too much pressure for any kid to be under that they would be the source of our value. That becomes a disaster for them because what happens when they don't succeed? They feel like not only have they let down themselves, but they've let down mom and dad. And eventually they will not succeed. And if they do succeed, then the thought is, wow, look what a great job that I've done. No. Kids are a wonderful part of our value, but we cannot gain our existence. We cannot gain our sense of life from our kids that's not the gospel. And it becomes an enslaving idea. Here's a series of ideas and behaviors that enslaved me for a number of years. I've shared Bob before that before I was a Christian, the only thing that really mattered to me was becoming a great basketball player. And so when I was very successful in basketball, my pride, it skyrocketed. Oh, look at me. And then when I stunk in basketball, my self-hatred 
took over. And the sense of envy for other people skyrocketed. So when I was the best player on the team, I just thought I was the greatest. And when I was the worst player on the team and I went to college and I realized I wasn't the greatest, well, I lost my self-identity. It's huge, huge loss. And then even later, after being a Christian for many years, because that was a habit that was down deep in my bones, I would go onto the basketball court and I'd feel this great pride when I did well and I'd feel this sense of self-hatred when I did poorly. And I would talk as much trash as an NBA basketball player when I was doing well. I say, look at me, look at me, even though I knew that that was causing disrepute to my Savior Jesus as people knew that I was a follower of Christ, and I hated that. So why was I doing something so stupid? Because it was an enslaving habit, and I couldn't break it on my own. So let me just ask, what do you do when you see that in you? Here's what I had to do. I had to fall upon my knees and confess it to God every day. That I am tempted by this every day. And I had to bring people around me and I had to make a plan. I mean, do you know that there is no change without a plan? There is no change without a plan. So you gotta make a plan. And so for me, the plan was two or three other guys who would help keep me accountable, who knew they could speak into my life and be very honest when I got off the tracks. And with that plan, a few Bible verses related to pride and envy and self-hatred and true identity in Christ and bathing myself in those Bible verses to the point of memorizing many of them that I would receive my value from him, not from what I do. And then going back to the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit every day and asking, Holy Spirit, would you dwell in me to give me new strength today? And finally fighting with the might that God had given me. Whatever might God has given you, you fight for it. Because holiness matters so much to God and so it should matter so much to us. What do you do when you see that in you? Really, whatever it is for you, it's not that much different from what it is for me. It could be gossip. It could be bitterness. It could be trouble with lust. It could be trouble with alcohol or overeating or overspending or greed or whatever. It can be almost anything. But the point is, We have to identify that as children in God's family and then strive to work against it. I love the way Paul says this at the end of this section. He says, I I strive for this for you. Look at verse 19. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I mean, you can just imagine what he's saying. I, I, I long for this. I long that Christ would be formed in you. There's nothing else that I really want as pastor of this church in Galatia, he's saying, but that Christ would be formed in you, that Christ would be formed in me. Don't you want a pastor like that who longs for Christ to be formed in you more completely across the board? Don't you want life group leaders like that who long for Christ to be formed in you more completely across the board, that you would resemble him more and more, that that would be our aim because that is the place where we glorify God and the place where we gain joy when we begin to resemble God more and more. Freedom is found in the Father's family, especially as we resemble the Son of God. As we become more and more like the Son of God, That is where joy is found. 
That is where peace is found. That is where freedom is found. Because Jesus was the most fully alive person who ever lived. He lived the most joy-filled life that's ever lived. And so if you want freedom, you rest in Jesus every day. You make a plan to say, would you conform me to your likeness, O God? And you remember that your God receives you just where you are. And he invites you close as his child. Jeremiah 3 says this. How gladly, the father says, how gladly would I treat you as my children. Not as my servants. Not as my slaves. Not as a master would treat his underlings. How gladly I would treat you as my children. Friends, we lean into that. We live out of that. We swing from the Father's loving branches. We're stabilized in Him. And then slowly but surely, we are freed from those old habits that enslave. Slowly but surely, we are freed from the old legalism that enslaves. And we pursue Christ with all we got. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. We thank you so much, Father, for sending your son Jesus to purchase us by his body and by his blood from the old empty way of life that was handed down to us. We thank you, Jesus, that you are willing to go all the way to the cross to redeem us and to pay the penalty for our sins, that we would not be slaves of fear, we would not be slaves of sin, we would not be slaves to our old habits, but we would be children of God. And that is what we are. For every person in this room who has embraced Christ as Savior, I pray that you would know, my friends, that you are children of God. And so I ask God that you would help us to live out of that, live from your great love and your invitation, your embrace, and your family. And we would demonstrate that in a beautiful way to those sitting around us today, to those in our life group and in our communities, that we would honor and glorify you as we act like children who are loved by a good, good Father, in whose name we pray. Amen.